0: I want to begin this morning because I want to ask you, do you, any of you remember where this is um, in the story of Abraham, is there anything too hard for me? The Lord asked that, and he asked it to one of the characters in this story. Does anyone happen to remember where that is? It's okay, to Sarah. And I pick Sarah, even though we're studying mostly Abraham, because um, we're women, <laughs> and um, I'm going to cry through this whole thing. I've been crying all weekend. Um, oh yes, yes, I can <laughs> see. Um, but I loved that um, God asked me this: "Is there anything too hard for me, Lori?" And the other thing that stood out to me in the whole story of Abraham is how many times God says to Abraham, Abram, "I will." And that is something I want you to keep in your mind as we go through this story. And Sue did a lot to uh, explain the first chapters of 12 through 15. And as I've been studying Abraham, um, there's parts that I'm gonna backtrack, just review over because it's so important to this last piece that we're gonna study. So there is going to be some backtracking a little bit. So we're just going to do a little review. And um, so let's see if I know how to do this. Yep, okay, keep looking forward. Okay, um, we're just going to review a little bit Abraham's background. We have to know that he was not a believer. He came from a family that worshipped idols all the way through his life. And they were specifically moon gods. And I want you to remember the moon gods. When God reached down into this pagan family in the Ur of Chaldeans and he spoke to a man named Abram and he commanded him, get out of his country, leave all your family, all your belongings, and go to a land I will show you. He did not mention where. He did not give him a blueprint or a map. I don't know that he gave him any directions at all, but he said go. That's all Abraham had. This was the very first covenant that we actually get to watch God work all the way through to his covenant. This was the first covenant that pertains to the rule of God, which is absolutely unconditional. And it depended only on God who obligated himself to in grace. And he did it through the declaration of I will. Abraham is 75 years old. That's a good time to start with God. And we saw that in chapter 15. This is really hard for me. Okay. Um, Then as soon as he's called, um, there's some things that I think a lot of us missed in the first part. But he makes a lot of blunders. God said, leave, go, without anything and anyone. And he takes everyone. He takes his whole clan. He takes all his belongings. He takes absolutely everything. And if you actually watch with a map where he goes, he kind of circles around. He doesn't go straight. And he kind of messes up a lot. But God's patient. It doesn't change God in the least. But there's a famine in the land. See, did I already do that one? Yes, there's, that's under four, sorry. Um, there's a famine in the land. Famine seems to be a common thing where it turns our heads and we go straight to Egypt, to the place of where sin is. He goes down to Egypt, taking his wife. First thing he does is he's thinking of himself. He thinks, wow, how do I get myself from being killed? Ah, give my wife away to the Pharaoh. Ah, he can have sex with her. It'll save my life. So that's a man after God's heart. (laughs) And um, so he does that doesn't change God's way in one, at one, one ounce. He just keeps going. So God already at this point in time is... Um, hold on a minute. Sorry, you guys. I am really hopeless at this part. I'm going to go back one. Yes. God is expanding his covenant already. He is taking the covenant he first told Abraham, and he expands it. <clears throat> and he's making it more specific. Each time he re- reiterates his, his covenant plan for Abraham, he, he doesn't add to it. He gets a little bit more specific, and he expands his covenant to Abraham, saying he will give him land, he will make him a great nation, and he's going to bless Adam. I don't know how to make that scoot down. Sorry. Marsha told me how to do it, but... Um, so Abraham's faith grows and deepens. And then we see something that comes on this, in the story with a person called Mac- Melchizedek. And in this chapter, we see, I'm not even going to talk about him, but we see that it was a huge encouragement to him. Melchizedek actually st- states that God is the most high, and he is Lord over the heavens and the earth, which we see. Later on in that chapter, Abram saying the exact same things. In fact, he's so convinced of it that he raises his hand to the Lord and he says, the God most high. We don't see Abram doing this yet. The possessor of heaven and earth. And then something happens we see in his heart. He is tempted to take some belongings of another king, another head in Sodom. And here's what he says. I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Adam rich. Abram is beginning to walk in belief that God is the one who will lead and provide his life and future and promise. And this was a huge step for Abram. That he could actually, in the midst of having very much a lot of stuff, say, No, thank you. God is the one that's going to provide. And then in chapter 15, we read and hear the Lord speaking to Abram in a vision. And he says, Abram, do not be afraid, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And I think that's an interesting statement of God. Up until this point, it was what God was gonna do with Abram, what his plans were, his covenant, where he was taking him, what he was gonna do in the future. And now he's making something very personal right in that moment. And this is the point I wanna begin on. God had given Abram a bare promise that he would possess land and that from him there would be multitudes of people that he couldn't count, numerous as the sand and as the stars in the sky. But this promise was without one thing to show for it. Now he's 85, started at 75, now 85, 10 years later. What would it be like to hear from God and 10 years later hear from him again? We have the full revelation of God to pick up any time of any day. I need assurance every minute. I could go this minute and believe God, and I could walk out the door. Something could happen, and I think, where are you, God? This guy had 10 years. We don't know if it was completely silent from God, but he certainly didn't have a written word. He had nothing except the stars in the sky and the sand on the ground. And so we see him, 85 years, he had neither child nor land. What had God promised him? Both. So neither promise that God had promised was tangible or visible or had any expression at all. He could not say, oh, look at all these promises God's given me and look how he's fulfilled them. There wasn't a single scrap of evidence that God was going to keep his promise, not one. So now this is where... So now this is where um, we are most of the time, or I should say I am, and see if you can relate to this. This is where I want to stop. I believe this is the challenge of most of my life, and I'm often just like Abraham, and we face this often. He calls me to believe, and I can tell you, if you could probably tell me, it would be much easier to live with the things that I can see rather than trust God for the things I cannot see. And that is the biggest challenge. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In 2 Corinthians 4.18b, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, can you imagine this man who God plucked out of a very pagan um, idol-worshiping community, and he's taking him on this journey in the school of faith. He's learning to believe and trust God just as we are no different than we are. What a wonderful God that this is a school of faith and that we didn't have our final exam when we were first called to him. Um, I feel like this is crucial to go through, even though these are in chapters that we've already studied, because I think it's going to lead um, Abram to the final point, which we are going to talk about later. When God says, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He comes to strengthen Abram because he is faced with the most common and central temptation, I believe, that even us 21st century Christians are faced with, that we doubt that the God is infinite goodness. Whoops. (laughs) I'm pushing the button. Nothing's happening. Oh, well, you guys don't need that. Um, that God is infinite goodness and that his purposes and his promises, that everything he says and does and allows is absolutely and infinitely good. <clears throat> now, I know some of you sitting here today are saying, Are you kidding me? That's no problem. I do believe God is good. Not me. I believe in the goodness of God. Yes, I believe in the goodness of God too, except when the test of when God's goodness, this good God in his good purposes and his good promises goes against my natural instincts and allows me to have things. Let me see if I can. Okay, I don't know where we are on this part, sorry guys allows me to go through, through things that beat me down or that I no longer want to be dealing with or where I cannot see any hope. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> or when I'm unable to see the direction I'm supposed to be going into or I have a broken heart or I'm discouraged or God's word falls flat on my heart or God's silent or family and friends that I'm closest to disappoint me. And maybe the last straw is when my church disappoints. And all of us I know sitting here can claim that God is good until we're right in the middle of it and our eyes are blinded by our circumstances. I want us to turn in our minds to Genesis 3 and remember that the original temptation in the Garden of Eden This is where Satan got leverage. God isn't really good. He set you in this garden and he's told you he's restricted you. He's placed walls around you. He's not good at all. Do you guys remember that? Not merely would they doubt his word, but they would doubt his infinite and absolute goodness, the original sin. I can feel the grit of that. At that moment, Adam and Eve had the chance to look back into the face of God and trust his goodness. But instead, like me, or maybe you, we believe the tempter rather than the sure promise of God. So we find Abraham in a similar situation. He's faced with a situation that's been years since I last heard God speaking. God who has given me these promises, but who has given me absolutely no evidence that he's keeping those promises. Can I believe the God of absolute and infinite goodness? Are all his purposes and plans nothing but undiluted goodness towards me on his part? Abram is about to wrestle with God, asking two questions. God, what will you really give me? And God, how will you keep your promise? He is now 10 years older, and in Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him for righteousness, or he counted it to him as righteousness, So Abram trusted in the Lord's promise through faith, and he was accounted in right relationship to God. This was the point at which God said, I am now accounting you as righteous. I'm putting you in the right place with me, which is a cool way to think of it. And God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Isn't it weird to think that the gospel was in the Old Testament? I didn't know that. I have to tell you. I went a long time as a believer thinking there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is the gospel. The Old Testament's just rules, and people had to live by the law. That's just not true. I put Jesus in the New Testament and not in the Old Testament. Where was he in the Old Testament? Did he just disappear? He was there from the very beginning and was there in every moment, around every character, and we'll, we'll discover that. So then those who are in faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So God gives assurance by sending him out into the night sky. Interesting that he sent him into the night sky. What was he before? He was a moon worshiper, a moon God worshiper. Isn't it like God to take something of our sin and redeem it and turn it into something different for his glory? So he lets him look into the sky again, (laughs) this time looking at the stars and counting them what a good god and he says so that he could believe that the god who could do anything that was nece- what was it necessary in order to bring him blessing abraham is there anything too hard for the lord so everything so every time at the close of each day abraham could step outside into the darkness of the sky and gaze where he always gazed before but this time remembering that the stars were the promise of the many blessings and covenants that God had promised him. And through trusting in this promise of God, he was accepted and became a friend of God in a free-flowing relationship before God. But how could this really be? This is Old Testament. How could it be? How could trusting in the fulfillment of the promise enable sinful Abram, the accounted righteousness from God? I asked that. I wanted to know that as I was starting to study Jesus in the Old Testament. And in Galatians 3.16, we are given the answer. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and seeds, in plural, as of many, but one seed. And to your seed, who is Christ. God was telling to Abraham, you're going to believe on the promise, the seed. What seed? Jesus. Jesus. The faith of Abraham was in Jesus. He didn't know that. God never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus was right there. He was the seed that Abraham was believing, that God spoke into Abraham's life, and Abraham trusted on the seed of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Take that promise that was given to Abraham, Abram at the time, that is his seed, that the nations of the world would be brought blessing. Where would that promise be fulfilled? In the person of Jesus Christ, Abraham's seed. On the cross of Calvary, dying in our place, bearing our sins in order that the blessing promised might come to all the nations and to the Gentiles. And that is how we are saved and justified. That is what brings us into a right relationship just as it brought him into a right relationship with God. Not what we have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for us in who and I come to trust and rest in. Jesus is an eternity. Although his fulfillment had not happened on the earth, nonetheless, in God's eyes, Jesus always was and always will be. He does not live in time. So Jesus was present and that that Jesus Christ was the same person that Abraham put his faith in, but not understanding it. And in him there is forgiveness and new life, and all the blessings of God's covenant promises become ours too. And that is what was happening to Abram. He was believing the exact same promise. He didn't know near as much as Paul did or as we do, but Abram was believing in the same promise that fulfilled. In Jesus Christ, the same grace that we have. He reached into the promise and he took hold of that promise, making God who would reveal himself fully one day in the person of Jesus Christ fulfilled on the earth. Abram was reaching forward into history as we reach back into history and take hold of the grace of God as in the death of Jesus Christ. People were saved in the Old Testament not because they managed to keep the law but because they trusted in the promise that was fulfilled in Christ. Just as we are saved and justified and pardoned, not because we managed to do good, but only because of the promise in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Abram had another question. How can we be sure God will keep the promise? We studied the covenantal ceremony in which God had Abram take the three animals, slice them, put them apart in, a par- in two parallel lines and the birds, and we saw God put Abram to sleep. It said that the sleep was the same sleep that, that God put Adam to sleep when he took the rib out of Adam and, Adam and made Eve. It had to be a knockout sleep. <laughs> well, he knocked Abram out. Why did he knock him out? Because he knew <laughs> Abram could not fulfill that covenant promise. He knew he would fail at it. So he walked right through that, those animals as a covenant promise to himself that if he didn't fulfill it, he would be taken out just as these animals. He would be sliced in two, cut off. From the, he would become the curse. And indeed, he did become the curse. As Jesus went to hell with the curse of all mankind's sin upon himself, it separated them from the Father, He was forsaken, and then he cried, It is finished. He took the curse so the blessing of the covenant would be given to us. Pretty incredible. I don't know where we are in the slides. In chapter 16, we see Abraham once again in walking in the school of faith, trying to fulfill what only God could fulfill. How many times do I try to help God out with what I know is his? I do the same thing. I help God out of a mess, or at least I try. And I try to do the only thing that he can really do. But God is patient, and he lets us make the mess. And he says, okay, now, finally at 99, (laughs) are you ready yet, Abraham? Abraham? The whole story of Hagar and Ishmael was where Abram tried to get God out of a mess. And he said, God, if you're not going to, if the seed isn't going to come the way I thought it was, I'll figure it out. I'll do it with somebody else. We'll get that seed somehow. And he tries. And it's, it's not right. And yet God's goodness, look at God's goodness to Hagar. In chapter 17, what time is it? Yikes. God appeared to Abraham and he falls. Guess what he's doing now? Now, guess where Abram is? He's falling on his face before God. He's 99 years old. He started at 75. And God changes his name. His name was Abram, meaning father. And he changed it to Abraham, father of many. Can you imagine him telling people, Hi, Abram. No, I'm Abraham. Ha, ha, ha. Father of many. He had not a child, he did have Ishmael. So then we finally get to 22. I'm running late, but I have to hurry. Um, and I want to ask you a question. This is the, the big test of Abram's life. Do you think Abram knew it was a test? He's, at the, he's getting his last calling from God, and he says this is the test. <clears throat> and it's saying, Abram, take your son, your only son, the one in whom you love, and sacrifice him. Here's all the promises of God. That doesn't make very much sense, but he knew something by this time, that God was the I will, I will. He knew that. He was convinced of that, and it changed his life. In verse 2, there is no explanation from God as to the reason he asked Abraham. It is a bare command of God's word with Abraham to learn faith, to trust and obey, not based on understanding, but because this is God asking, that's enough, because it's God asking. And Abraham's great response, how do you think it went that night? Do you think he slept that night? I don't, I think just because he had faith, I think he was up all night. He was probably in the same state of shock that I often am when something comes along, but demonstrates his faith all the same. This was a three-day journey. This didn't have to be a three-day journey. This could have been a one-day journey. But I like to imagine what Abraham did. I have about two minutes. I like to imagine him being at the base of that mountain and God saying, where did I ask you to go? Up the mountain? What do you do? Take a step, take a step. Taking his knife and the wood on Isaac's back, and going up the mountain, can you imagine after the first day, Isaac, where are you? A third of the way up the mountain. Where did I tell you to go? To the top of the mountain. What do you have to do? Take the next step. Okay, take the next step. And I can't imagine those three days, even though he believed the I will. Can you imagine being asked to sacrifice your son when he, God had promised him this is the way that I'm going to bless you? And he did, and he got to the top. And just as he was lifting the knife, he looks around, and God says, "Stop." And when you look around, what's at the top of the mountain? A ram. Where did that come from? From a you? From where? From a lamb? From what? A you? From a lamb? From a you? From a lamb? From when? From the very first of creation, God had that lamb planned. And he came just at the right moment. And do you guys know from the rest of the time for the whole Old Testament all the way to Christ, that was the big question of all the Israelites? Where is the lamb? That become the question. Where is the lamb? And still today, we're asking that when we say, Jesus, where are you? Come back. The lamb is going to return. He's going to be the lamb of God. And in in Isaiah 53 even, it talks, it's the prophetic prophetic piece that explains Christ and his life and his slaughter. So the whole, whole Old Testament is looking forward to the question, where is the lamb? Until the day that John the Baptist comes. And what does he say when the people are coming? Look, there is the real lamb. So the lamb is always in their sight for looking for the lamb, the glorious provision of God. <clears throat> Why would God do all this? Because the father in heaven would lead his son through, Je- through Jerusalem and up that same mount that Isaac was brought to, the very same mount. He goes up to the mountain with the cross on his shoulders, just as Isaac took the wood on his shoulders with his father, just as Isaac went up to the mountain with his father and who carried the knife god who carried the knife up the mountain with isaac abraham <coughs> in romans 8:32 god did not do what abraham did he did not spare his own son he delivered him up to the cross for their salvation the father says will you go and the son said yes give me the cup i will The New Testament is the is in the old contained, and the Old Testament is the new explained. (laughs) Thanks.